standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 196 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and for my 45th birthday, my little ma bought me a toy dinosaur. She is called Audrey and I love her. Well, there Aww. you go. Never too old. What kind of dinosaur is she? She's a very small brontosaurus, Jen. <laughs> nice. She's got a little corduroy belly and it's very good to hug. Oh, that's nice. I it like that. nice. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and my little corner of Cambridge has been overrun with seagulls. Hold on to your pasties. Honestly, suddenly out of nowhere, there's just loads of seagulls just flying around shouting and sitting on my roof and shouting. It's been going on for about a fortnight. And I sent a message to my WhatsApp group of friends I used to work with at local newspapers to say, oh, it's a shame we don't work at the paper anymore. This would be an excellent page three picture story. Why are we suddenly overrun with seagulls? Those who live in nicer areas of Cambridge are all like, we haven't got any. And we decided it's because Arbury has more like places to buy chips per square <laughs> foot than any other part of Cambridge. It's the best place for a mugging, a street mugging. I've got a lovely image now, seagulls with like sort of an A to Z, a map yeah. laid out, just circling <laughs> where all the chippies are. No, they've got it on their app. Like, where's oh, my closest phone. petrol yeah. station chip mm. shop? Yeah. Is it true that if you throw hammer a seagull mid-flight and it tries to eat it while it's flying, it explodes? Is it true that if a seagull meets another seagull, he looks exactly like yes, him? Yes, yeah. it is true. He just drops out of the sky and dies, yeah. Do they both die, Jen, or just the actual original seagull? Who's the original Mick? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, actually. That's part of the theory I've never really interrogated, if I'm honest. Okay. Who's the protagonist in this story? (laughs) I'm Jen Offord, and I don't recommend fake tanning your face while drunk. You look all right. You don't look like an umpa-lumper or anything. Yeah, it's all right now. When I woke up on Thursday, I just looked jaundiced, to be honest. It wasn't a great look. And given that it's not something I do with any regularity, I'm not really sure what possessed me to go home and fake tan my face so I can't just the face as well I don't know. Yeah. just the face just the face yeah mm-hmm. I've got these tanning drops that you put in your moisturizer and I don't know why just thought I'll have a go at that didn't look good there are very few things I recommend doing while drunk apart from getting into bed and having a big sleep or eating a eating a pasty yeah but yeah. not in Arbury not in Arbury in the street no <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Later on, I chat Angela Carter, Feminism, Wolves and Circus Skills with Mary Swan, director of Proteus Theatre's adaptation of The Bloody Chamber. I'm talking to activist Kimberly Jones about her book, How We Can Win and the Economics of Racial Inequality in the US. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I look forward to the women's six nations. And in Rated or Dated, we learn to always pay for our tuna fish and ask... What is comedy? As we watch 1992 Oscar-winning smash hit, My Cousin Vinny. But first, I've forgotten to write anything to go in this spot, so I'm just going to scream into the sky. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like a wartime Jack and Ori with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but considerably less calming. I don't know what this is a reference to, Jen. Do you not? Have you not seen it? I've been trying to not be on Twitter this weekend because it's good for your brain every so often. Arnold Schwarzenegger has recorded like a 10 minute long video that he's put on, it's like 9 minutes 16, but let's call it 10 minutes for the purposes of this video that he's put on Twitter and various other social media platforms appealing to the people of Russia 
to tell them that what they're being told is a lie, basically, and that things are considerably worse in a number of ways than they may or may not be aware of. At one point makes a direct appeal to Putin to, like, you know, just pack it in. Part of it is, like, it's quite funny that Arnold Schwarzenegger has taken it upon himself to, like, directly appeal to the people of Russia and indeed to President Putin to uh, try and talk them off this particular ledge. But also, it's actually quite, like, calming in a weird way. So, let's talk about the highly unusual situation that I found myself in recently, and that is being in agreement with Grant Shapps about something. (laughs) Oh, makes me feel dirty. Dirty. (laughs) In fact, it says everything about the audacity of PNO's sacking of its workforce last week that most of the country, regardless of how they voted, was outraged in unison. The ferry operator's 800 staff across the UK were let go with no notice via a pre-recorded video and then hustled off their ferries and into unemployment. Their jobs will be taken by agency staff who will be paid less. Some reports suggesting that figure is below minimum wage. An article in The Independent claims some high-ranking P&O officers have been contacted by a firm hiring replacement crews and offered a £20,000 bonus if they sign up to take back their old roles. Hang on, isn't this something called fire and rehire? And didn't Labour's Barry Gardner try to do something about it last year? Yes, indeed he did. And the Tories talked it out, which is tantamount to blocking a vote on it, which was cruel and as it turns out, exceptionally short-sighted. Labour has urged the business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng to launch legal action against P&O Ferries over what it called the scandalous decision to sack the 800 workers, which the party said is a criminal offence. What is the law right now? Well, according to that letter, under section 193 of the Trade Union Labour Relations Brackets Consolidation Act 1992, employers who want to make more than 100 people redundant have a duty to notify the business secretary of their plans before giving notice to the workers. The employer is also required to do so at least 45 days before the dismissal. And let's not forget that P&O, which is ultimately owned by the Dubai royal family, claimed £10 million in furlough cash in 2020, Mm. the same year it paid bosses £270 million in dividends. And let's not forget that the government is currently in the process, it claims, of levelling up coastal communities across the UK, exactly the communities now affected by these job losses. All of this is being talked about across the media, so I just wanted to say something that I've not seen so much chat about, and that is the pressing subject of greener transport. If the government wants me to stop flying to Ireland or the Netherlands or France or Belgium or Spain, there needs to be a viable alternative. And given that P&O is the country's second largest ferry operator, I no longer feel I can use them as said alternative because I'm not giving my money to rich cunts who treat their staff like shit. I can't do it morally and I can't do it because I no longer trust them to be safe. So if the other ferry companies and the Eurostars are booked up, I'm going to have to fly, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah, that's pretty fucking diabolical. I'm pretty sure it's a legal requirement to give people notice and to tell them that their jobs are in 
jeopardy as well, isn't it? Well, I thought it was a legal requirement that you made jobs redundant and not people. Yes. I'm obviously not correct there. Well, the government do that themselves. The government made swathes of redundancies after the Tories got in in 2010 and then filled those vacancies with agency staff. So the very people who are allowing it to happen have overseen it Mm. happen at a huge scale across their own departments. There were protests this weekend in London after it emerged that a 15-year-old girl known as Child Q was strip-searched at school by police officers in 2020 after being suspected, wrongly, of carrying cannabis. Details emerged last week of the incident where the girl, who was on her period at the time, was taken out of an exam to a medical room where she was asked to remove her sanitary towel by the two female police officers who conducted the search and without the presence of another adult. The girl's family is now suing the school, which has also not been named. A safeguarding report subsequently concluded that this search should not have happened and that racism and what it referred to as an adultification bias were likely to have been influencing factors. The Metropolitan Police have also agreed that the search shouldn't have been conducted and have apologised. Since the publication of the report, rallies have taken place in London with protesters raising concerns about racism in the Metropolitan Police and about the way that black girls are perceived as being older than their years because, as the report highlighted, they are seen as being more streetwise. In an article written for The Guardian on Monday in response to calls for police reform, the Chief Constable of Police Scotland, Ian Livingstone, criticised UK police and said that forces had a moral imperative and operational necessity to demonstrate no tolerance for misogyny, racism and discrimination. As part of that, he added that the police must also listen to the voices of survivors of rape and sexual violence. Words and good intent are not enough, he said. There must be action, practical, firm, progressive, visible action. Amen to that. Well, yeah, quite. Yeah. I was thinking about this because I dated a man who, in his like early 20s, he was discovered with like a little bit of weed or whatever in, in his pocket. And he was prosecuted for that. He actually was taken to a magistrate's court and he was prosecuted. And, he, and you know, at the age of, like, I don't know, 22 or whatever... He had a conviction against his name. And I was thinking about that. He was he was black. And I was thinking about all the times that I used to go and sit in cars with my mates when we were 17 and smoke weed. And the police would come along and find us. And it, like, you cannot disguise that smell, can you? Like, it's there's no disguising that. And they'd just be like, all right, move along. Off you pop. And nothing ever happened to any of us. Yeah. And I know you have thoughts about... Well, I mean, I personally, I think all drugs should be decriminalised. So, yeah, I find the whole thing just bizarre that you attempt to criminalise children for doing mm. something that the vast majority of children do. I mean, I've smelled like weed consistently since I was about 15, and <laughs> this never happened to me. I would say I'm probably the ideal control experiment in that sense, this never happened to me. I did have encounters with the police, but it never that never happened to me. It's not actually the police that I'm most annoyed with. What the fuck was that school doing? Why mm. teachers are in loco parentis in that situation. What yeah. the fuck were they letting that happen? Fred West got an appropriate adult. Why doesn't she get yeah. one? It It's just, it's obscene. And the teachers stood outside the door, apparently. And I guess, I mean, arguably, maybe they would say, you know, 
it was a humiliating enough experience for her as it is what would a teacher be doing in there as well but why the fuck you know but why wasn't a teacher arguing that that's not the that that wasn't well that it was an inappropriate course yeah. of action yeah absolutely absolutely yeah no it's 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 unbelievable it's unbelievable to think of what I cannot imagine what a horrendous experience that would be for me at the age of almost 40, let alone a 15-year-old girl, like how frightened you would feel and how humiliated you would feel. It's it's horrific, absolutely horrific. Yeah, and yeah, like you said, it's happened because she's she's young and she's black, but also I would add it's happened because she's poor. I, I mean, I'm telling yeah. you, we don't know what school that is, but that ain't a private school that that's gone on in. No, well, she lived, I think the report actually said that she lived on a council estate. Yeah. And that was part of what they highlighted as as the sort of, you know, bias against her, basically. Yeah. Let's have a bit of good news, eh? And again... Yes, please. Second week in a row, it's genuinely cracking news. So you, Jen, wrote in the Bush Telegram... Telegram? Telegram. <laughs> you wrote in the Bush Telegram last week that Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe was probably on her way home to the UK after six years being held captive by Iran on charges that can best be described as bullshit. Now, there's been some false dawns in this case before now, so all fingers were crossed until Nazanin and British-Iranian businessman Anousheh Ashouri, also released at the same time, finally arrived home. It's been an absolute delight to see photographs of Nazanin reunited with her family, husband Richard and their seven-year-old daughter Gabriella, My absolute admiration to Richard and the couple's friends and family for keeping this story in the public eye for so long. And to Tulip Sadiq, the couple's MP and tireless champion. Newsreader Joanna Gosling really struggled to hold back tears when she announced the news on the BBC News Channel. And I think she speaks for all of us. It is indeed proper good news. I've been trying for about six months to set up an interview with Tulip Sadiq and Richard Radcliffe to talk about Nassan and Sagari Radcliffe and for one reason or another they haven't been able to do it or I haven't been able to do it and it hasn't happened and I don't think I've ever been so delighted that an interview has now fallen through. More news next week. Well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they? Sexism of the week. Welcome to Sexism of the Week, that time of the week when we wonder, why are we helping men out when they seem to have cornered the market so successfully already? Oh, bless them. They need a little bit of help, Jen. Well, here to provide it, slow claps all round this week for Gillian Harvey and The Independent for publishing the most bafflingly sexist and, I'd venture, pointless piece I've read (laughs) in a long time. Competition is high. I know, but seriously, they've managed it. Let me tell you the headline, Hannah, which I know Harvey herself will not have had anything to do with, but it does give you a good indication of where this article is going. The real test for Rihanna will be her post-baby body. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Slow news week, was it, guys? I'm going to jump in there as someone who has had a child themselves not too long ago, and this is before I even get into the meat of the article, to ask the question... Will it? Mm-hmm. Will her post-baby body be the real challenge or will it be extreme sleep deprivation, constant anxiety and sheer fucking terror that she now has an actual human being to take responsibility for? Now, I can't really be bothered to go into the details of this article or indeed to perpetuate further the utter bollocks contained in it. But in a nutshell, it focuses on the pregnant pop star's style and how she has fashioned her baby bum. (laughs) 
the author applauds her for getting it out in public and she bemoans the use of flaunt as an appropriate verb when talking about the displays of the pregnant form. So far, so good, right? But she adds that it's all well and good being honest about what happens to a woman's body during pregnancy, but how is Rihanna going to deal with it after she gives birth and her body looks like shit? (laughs) Now, I'm paraphrasing slightly... But here's the stand first, which in fairness, Harvey also won't have written herself. I'm ready to celebrate my mom bod the way people rhapsodise about dad bods. Okay, so The Independent is publishing this article in the name of feminism, is it? Can I ask what what a dad bod is? I mean, I know what it is, but presumably the fact there's an expression for it means that it's a thing, a, a cultural thing that I've missed out on. I think what it means is when you become a father... And you're, like, busy and tired and you let yourself go. I think that is basically what a dad bod is. But I've never seen anyone rhapsodising it ever. I've only ever seen it as, like, a sort of point of mirth or belittlement. I've never seen it as, like, whoa, look at his dad bod. Like, I've never seen that. I'm guessing, you know, the internet has shown us that people fetishise all sorts of weird shit. So there's probably some corner of the world that that happens in, but I've not seen any of it either. Absolutely. Women and men look like shit after they have children. Thanks. Anyway, so she continues, I want to know whether Rihanna will find a way to be sexy and beautiful in her mom bod, both in the weeks after pregnancy and beyond. The weeks after pregnancy? Yeah, when she's still bleeding and leaking all sorts of fluids. Like, how's she going to be sexy then, huh? Huh? Now, obviously, this is presented as, like some sort of like feminist piece like yeah all right get your pregnant belly out but like what are you going to do after that are you going to be like look at my leaking tits and whatever i mean i assume not anyway my point being hannah i I want to find a way to articulate in words beyond a slurry of profanities how misguided and utterly contradictory this article is to its feminist aspirations right let's be clear Rihanna's body is, with or without child, no one's fucking business but her own. And in a world where we still have to ask to be seen as more than walking wombs or fuckholes on legs, this kind of rhetoric is not helpful. However you want to dress, or indeed undress it, up. Yeah, I don't even... I don't really even understand why this is a conversation point. It's no, not exactly, it's pointless. It's not Rihanna's job to be inspirational to other mothers. No. Or I just, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I do know that for years and years and years, there was this stuff that used to go on in which, you know, women, famous women would have babies and be seen out in skinny jeans like six weeks later and they were like massively praised. That might still go on. I don't know. Yeah. But I I think it's probably less extreme than it was, say, 20 years ago. And that put an unfair pressure on women to kind of look perfect. But is this suggesting that Rihanna should should literally go out looking like shit just because that's what... I, I think basically what it's saying is, in the name of feminism, for Rihanna should not get herself back in in inverted commas, in shape or whatever afterwards because she has to carry the can for all of womankind and not make the other women feel like shit. Right. And what I would argue is that even having this fucking conversation is making women feel... Do you know what I mean? Like, 
just don't fucking perpetuate this ridiculous myth. Like, look however the fuck you want to look. It doesn't matter. Like, it's it's utterly ridiculous. I feel like she's criticising Rihanna before she's even done anything. Yeah. I mean, it's the same argument that suggests that some actresses should go to events with a bloodstain on the back of their dress because that does happen to some women sometimes. Yeah. yeah. It's so misguided, it's hard to distinguish what the fucking point of it is. As indeed, you have just sort of struggled a little bit, Hannah, and like, rightly so. I mean, I am happy to look like shit as inspiration for all women of the world, (laughs) if that helps, Rihanna. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Mary Swan, director of Proteus Theatre's The Bloody Chamber, Angela Carter's dark, glittering, feminist take on famous fairy tales. Vampires and werewolves and women. Oh my, Mary, hello. Hello. So are you a big Angela Carter fan? Yes, absolutely, yes. Encountered her in my 20s in university and read The Bloody Chamber then. And then I think like a lot of people then read Nights at the Circus and Wise Children, those things afterwards. But it was The Bloody Chamber that really stuck with me. But I I think she's wonderful. And I've, I've only recently discovered her poetry as well. And she's just amazing, you know, in her writing. Her essays are really great as well, this collection of her essays. She had this incredible life where she went off and lived in Japan and basically became a, a kind of cool girl in a Japanese bar for a while. I mean, she's she's phenomenal as a woman. And there's a series of essays about her time in Japan that are really fascinating as well. So there's so much to choose from. But no, I'm a big fan. For anyone listening who isn't up on their Angela Carter, and seriously, if you're not, get involved. She is astonishingly brilliant. Could you give us a little rundown of The Bloody Chamber, please? So she adapted a collection of folk tales and fairy tales. So they're not all fairy tales. So there's Bluebeard in there. There's a couple of very strange, very tiny vignette folk tales, lots of werewolf tales, some of which are very old English stories. And then the Red Riding Hood, as we know, and then some original short stories in there. There's a vampire story called Lady of the House of Love that's in there. And it's this anthology that she wrote really from a female perspective. She sort of shied away at the time, seemingly, about describing herself as a feminist, because I think that second wave of of feminism, she got in trouble with them a little bit because she was very, (laughs) she was very interested in female sexuality and releasing female sexuality. And that is really central in the bloody chamber. There's a lot of, of raunch and sex and things going on, but also in that sense of it being sometimes quite uncomfortable in Red Riding Hood for example she ends up sleeping with the wolf and so that's that's problematic as we point out in the in the play so she got a bit in trouble with second wave feminism at the time because she was she also wrote a book called The Sardian Woman where she readdressed the Marquis de Sade and and looked at female sexuality from the point of view of you know let's be really open and have a conversation about it so yeah she's really interesting from that perspective I think So how do you adapt a collection of stories, so it's 10 stories in 80 minutes, into a coherent whole for the stage? Well, we don't do them all, for a start. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good first thing. Get rid of a couple. (laughs) We do. We do. We get rid of a few. So we condense the wolf stories into one. We basically got ourselves in a room. I brought into the room a bunch of very, very talented, wonderful women to work with me over now what's become three years of developing the piece because of the pandemic so in a strange way that was really useful the whole thing was on the starting blocks five years ago as a kind of planning and development thing 
because these things take time and the way I work is very physical is from a devising perspective so even though I've adapted it a lot of the way that we've pulled out the text and everything else has happened in a room in a collaborative way and there's been a bunch of women who kind of have come in and, and been part of the development process who haven't necessarily been in the final show so Vicky Amedeme who's artistic director of Upswing Circus she came in and worked with this wonderful actress called Alison Halstead was working with us for a while um, as well as the creative team that have stuck with it so Sylvia Fratelli who's AD of Mimbra it's an all-female um, acrobalance company and Charlotte Mooney who's artistic director of Occam's Razor so it's been lovely to just bring these really talented funny women all from different perspectives you know in different backgrounds as well to kind of come and see what it means to them and and to tease out what actually these tales mean now because you know theatre is a live form so the point is is we're always saying why are we telling these stories now and very early on the themes of advice for young girls became very prevalent and that was the thing that we suddenly went ah that's the key don't go in the woods don't go off with the handsome stranger don't be too loud all of those things yeah yeah I love that there's an all-female team. It's amazing. And fairy tales and folk tales are like the real world, famously unkind to women. Mm. Unkind, very much a euphemism there, which is why Carter turning the tables is so delicious. I did see your production described as a feminist retelling of Angela Carter, which made me laugh. I mean, because that is a lot of feminism. (laughs) Well, well, it was, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think because people don't always associate the bloody child I th- and as I say because you know as I said earlier she never pushed that herself and I think it's been forgotten just how feminist her work is I think sometimes it kind of you know and it, and it is really really basic I don't think she realized actually how it, it still feels very strong but also there are problems with it it's very white the world in the novel and that's to do with being folk tales fairy tales largely from a a sort of celtic or a a european point of view Mm -hmm. but that doesn't make sense to us now so also we had to unpick okay how do we you know really kind of bring that into into relevance in the modern world and how do we make sure that these stories kind of really sing for everyone you know and, and represent all women yeah obviously misogyny and male violence against women hasn't gone away sorry if anyone thought it had and this is a disappointing and surprising listen <laughs> no one listening surprised but yeah it, it is it is very much still there so I assume that is kind of key to you in bringing the bloody chamber to the stage now yeah completely completely so we we opened the show last year in Worthing to a socially distanced audience just to, to sort of preview it and one of the cast had some young male friends who came to see the show who were all perfectly lovely one of whom was absolutely shocked that uh, there's a line in the show where we talk about having your keys in your hand in your pocket when you walk home. Yeah. Who was absolutely shocked that that was a thing. And it's really interesting when you make a show and it's about women and you go, oh, you know, this is a you know a feminist take on stuff. You always get criticised for not being feminist enough. And my rebut always is, look, these are the people in the audience. Mm-hmm. These people are still out there who actually really don't think that this is an issue and if the Met Police can issue a list of advice that almost matched word for word part of what we put in the show three years ago in R&D about what advice do you give your daughters what advice did your mum give you if they can release that list now in 2021 or 22 whenever it was you sort of think yeah we, we we do need to be a bit basic sometimes about listen everyone 
here's the thing. Yeah, totally. I assume one of the characters at some point is in danger and just flags down a bus because that's easy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I know. Ugh. We nearly, we were trying to get it in. We didn't get it in. It was too much of a leap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mary, let's talk circus. Seriously, I love Angela Carter. I love circus. And therefore, and I'm sorry, this might sound a bit forward, but I love you. <laughs> How do they work together? What does the language of circus and aerial and acrobatics bring to the stories? I think it's something about the ethereal, isn't it? I mean, it was really early on in my thinking when I was looking at the novel and wanting to adapt it. It was very early on that I kind of went, well, this is definitely aerial and definitely acro. Because there's something about the idea of being weightless and away from the earth and in midair. And it's so easy then to kind of feel literally that suspension of belief. And also what it does is it physically creates the worlds in a different way so that we're using silks. uh, We use a trapeze as well, but it's a very sort of it's a trapeze in a cage. So it's a slightly different use of a trapeze. But the silks are the sort of main aerial element. And there's so much beauty in that, but also so much ugliness that you can find in that sort of work, physical work. So for us, it was about really taking people away from the world and really kind of creating somewhere else where you're going. And circus is a really good shortcut to that because suddenly you have people doing things they shouldn't be able to do mm-hmm. live in front of you. And and circus in a theatre or circus in any live context is really interesting because you can see the performers sweat. You can hear them breathe. You can see the effort of it. It's not like you're three miles away or watching it on television and everyone looks wonderful you know it's hard work but then also this is a, an entire cast of women and so the acro is really interesting as well it's really unusual to see women lifting other women you know holding them on shoulders kind of doing things that are about feats of strength as well so that was also really important but it's just lovely to work with it's just a beautiful visual language and it's a really lovely storytelling tool as well I love that. I love that the exertion of circus and as someone who's done aerial and was doing aerial very regularly for a long time, not anymore, that the oh. actual exertion and strength. And like you say, it's kind of when you certainly when you're starting off, it's very clumsy to get up some silks. They are hard to look that effortless. It's very similar to the way that women are expected to put all of this work in to look like we're not trying at all to look natural to, you know, to to meet the male gaze, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about strong women, but what we don't do is kind of show that often in a really visceral way mm-hmm. and, and kind of say, no, no, this is actually how, how strong women are. And as you say, yeah, it's, it is also that wonderful metaphor for how much work goes into everything. And I think also, you know, as I say, it's not something that, you know, female circus perform, you know, they're still very much in the minority. So it's lovely to see that and to work with that in a room. Absolutely. And uh, a little fun fact, it was actually a theatre version of Knights of the Circus from Nehi that got me first interested in trying Ariel because they had feathers on a static trapeze and it was glorious. Well, how interesting that the woman who choreographed that show, Lorraine Moynihan, is one of my cast in The Bloody Chamber. Uh, yes, please. Amazing. <laughs> It's a so yeah, tiny world. <laughs> it's a well. It is. It's a very small world. It's a very small world. Yeah. So and and we've got a cast of all different ages as well because Lorraine's now kind of a little bit older. I'm not going to say how old she is because we don't do that. You know, not not 23, which is the other thing. We've got a really varied cast of 
ages we've got women who are over 40 we've got women who are bigger in the show you know they're not all because again I get a bit fed up with seeing sometimes very physical shows and everybody's identikit kind of teeny tiny sort of little little women running around and I was very keen that we didn't have that that we had different sizes different ages and also different uh kind of diasporas represented on stage as well have you been up the silks yourself mary i am rubbish at silks i can't even climb (laughs) i can't even climb them i do do i have done i do do i don't do I've done a little bit of static trapeze. Lorraine made me do it years ago when we, we've worked together for over 10 years. She choreographed a lot of the previous shows that I've done where we've used Ariel. And uh, yeah, she, couple, first couple of times we started working together, she made me get up on a trapeze, which was fun. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's amazing. It's so hard. But as a director, it was really useful to go, oh, okay this is how much I can ask my performers to uh-huh. do. So I'm always really interested in like how actually where is the limit of, of what you can reasonably ask a performer or an actor to do in a show. Plus, you know, in this case, it's 85 minutes of talking, emoting, doing all of those other things. So it's really important that you understand the physicality of it, yeah. Definitely. My friend Becca Solomon does theatre and circus. She's astonishing. She's really, really good and does that storytelling through Ariel. She does ropes, which, man, they burn. As do silks, to be fair. And when you when you look at Becca's body, it is fierce and strong. It's so beautiful. You know, that male gaze has gone and you can just respect this athlete's body. It's incredible. But it's also an understanding, I think, what always the learning is how hard people are in the sense you know people who do circus are hard as hard as nails you know it is literally that thing where they'll be bleeding just go oh yeah it's fine you know give me five minutes and I'll get back up there you're kind of no don't do that but it's yeah it's it's really really interesting as you say about what happened you know looking at women's bodies in different contexts like that Mm mm-hmm So you have brought a book from the 70s into the 2020s. What have been the main sort of tweaks that you've done to make that happen? Um, Well, as I say, it's very white. So we challenged that straight away. And I don't know if that's overly intentional of Angela Carter, but I think it's one of those things where it it just wasn't at the forefront of her mind and we can talk about the problems of that as well in terms of of the state of Britain in the 70s and in some ways you know white feminism in that sense as well kind of being slightly an issue there I suppose the main tweaks for us trying to think because because it's a fantasy world and so much of it is kind of set in these fantasy worlds actually very little in the end because Mm. you're not dealing with contemporary issues she's not talking about things that don't ring true so actually in terms of bringing forth and adapting what was in there once we'd chosen the stories that wasn't as much of a an issue for a late for that period as you would think if you were adapting say something that was much more sort of you know set in the real world as Mm -hmm. it were I suppose it was more to do with what stories we didn't tell so there's a particularly particularly bizarre one which is about incest and a very young girl and it was one of those where you kind of went there's not enough time in an evening for us to (laughs) not this time carter (laughs) and do this because books can do this it leaves you to decide how you feel about it queasy or not but of course in the theater we have a responsibility around you know kinds of things like trigger warnings around how we deal with those sorts of issues on stage and the show itself is is joyous it's fun it's very serious in moments but 
you have to think about as well where where do you want the audience to be that by the end of it and that was a whole other conversation so that I suppose that's probably where it came into it mostly as to what we kind of didn't touch on or what we left out that's true and you touched on it earlier that Carter is a proper saucy naughty and funny storyteller but it's it sounds like you've absolutely kept those elements within your retelling of the bloody chamber it's interesting because making it through the pandemic because this should have gone on tour in 2020 Mm. or it should have been made to tour in 2020 21 so we were sort of a year down the line and I think that going through that period going through the pandemic going through everything our industry went through when we had to just stop and just really didn't know if we were going to be able to make the show ever really the joy of being back in a room with a group of women going we're actually making something I think has come into the show and made it a lot funnier than I think we first thought it would be uh-huh. and I think it's just that thing if we came out and just went well actually what do we want people to do we want people to have a really good time we want them to kind of really get what we're saying, really understand the kind of storylines of it. But as you say, it's bawdy, it's fun, it's silly, it's ridiculous, and it's and it's beautiful. It's all those things, you know, which the book is, really. I think what you mentioned earlier about certain people coming and being in an audience drawn by what you're selling, which is a, a great night out with circus and stories, and actually coming away with a bit of basic information that they don't have when they're maybe, like we are, immersed in the world of feminism. I mean, that is a win. Well, I call it Trojan horsing, and we've <laughs> done it before. We've done it before. I do it quite a lot. We, we made a few years back with Ashley Christmas, who is in the cast of Bloody Chamber. We made a show about Hattie Jakes and Glorious. took it on a village hall. Yeah, isn't she? We took it on a village hall tour to all these, you know, places around, across the country nationally. But actually, it was really a show about sizeism and sexism in the theatre and TV industry and film industry, and basically was around why Ashley Christmas playing Hattie Jakes could not have the career Hattie Jakes had today because we don't cast those women. So we kind of did that Trojan horse thing of, here's a lovely show about Hattie Jakes, come along, everyone, and now, rah, here's here's (laughs) the real, be angry about this, you know. And so it was great to do it that way. And so we really enjoy doing that, of kind of going, come, 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 and we'll teach you something. And you might feel angry about it, but you'll still have a great night out. Otherwise, you're preaching to the converted. What's the point? Well, you know, we're big proponents of shouty feminism, but stealth feminism absolutely uh, plays its role, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I like that, stealth feminism. I'm going to use that. (laughs) So, Mary, the Bloody Chamber tour kicks off on March the 23rd at Harlow Playhouse and visits various venues across the country until it ends at Norwich Playhouse on May the 13th and 14th. Where can people find that in-between info, please? On our website, so www.proteustheatre.com. It's Proteus is P-R-O-T-E-U-S, proteustheatre.com's character in Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, go to our website. All the details are there. You can link on to the venues. And obviously the venues themselves will have tickets. And we'll be out again in the autumn. We haven't put those dates yet up on the website, but we've got some more dates in the autumn where we'll be in London at Jackson's Lane and at the Larry in Manchester and places like that. So yes, if you can't make it in the spring, come see us in the autumn. Well, that's just made my day because I was like, like, there's no London date and I know London centric but now I'm excited that's exciting there is yes so you have to come along yeah <laughs> amazing Mary thank you so much for chatting with me oh no worries thank you lovely to meet you I'm joined by Kimberly Jones writer activist and author of the new book how we can win race history and changing the money game that's rigged Kimberly, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Obviously, you are an author, you've written YA books, but people in the UK may have heard of you because of a video that you recorded, which went viral in the wake of the 2020 protests after the murder of George Floyd. And you gave a really, really impassioned and powerful speech in which you likened the situation for African-Americans as being like 400 rounds of Monopoly and the the game being rigged basically against black people in the United States. Could you tell me a little bit about the book and how the speech that you gave at the time inspired it? It was interesting because that speech, like pieces of it, are actually from an article that I read when I was 12 years old. So that's how long I have been carrying that message in my spirit. When I was 12 years old, I have I have ADHD and I was very disruptive in, in, in school. And so I had a teacher who realized that I would just really like to talk. And if she just would let me burn a little energy talking, I would behave. So she periodically would like let me teach class, teach a lesson and things like that. And so she realized in that that I was a good orator. And so she started to put me in oratory competitions. And there was a woman, um, Reverend Willie Beatrice Barrow, who at the time was the right hand to Jesse Jackson and ran Operation Push Rainbow Coalition. And she had written this article about the economics of oppression and how oppression and economics are closely tied. And so I memorized that speech when I was a kid to deliver for an oratory competition and didn't win. I came in like second place or whatever. But I still remembered that speech the entirety of my life. And it crafted the way in which I, I viewed racism is because I realized it just stuck with me that she framed it as being so closely attached to economics and how even when you think about something uh, like slavery, as atrocious as it, as it is, uh, people get upset when I say this, but it was an economic decision. It was not right out about supremacy or any sort. Supremacy was invented to support it. And so when I continued on my journey and was looking at oppression through the lens of economics, not just here in the United States, but globally, it made sense. It made sense how those decisions are economically motivated. And then the, the construct of racism, classism, sexism comes in as a way to manipulate and force people to support those theories. And so I started my entire life to build work around that. And so in that moment, I was so upset with everything that was happening around me. You know, that speech wasn't planned or written or anything. I was just really broken that day. And that's what came out. The book is about economics, but actually you've you've written it in such a way that it really you know, is easy to understand. It's very accessible. And you've written it in a way like, you drop the occasional F-bomb in it, Kimberly, which is absolutely fine by me. And uh, we do swear on this <laughs> podcast, so do feel free to do so. But like, that's my kind of economics book. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's why people even connected to the speech originally, right? Because I try not to talk down to people. I try to talk to people and I try to talk to people in a way in which they can engage with me. And, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm neurodivergent. I have ADHD. I also battle with anxiety. So there is part of me that, that I write the way in which I receive information and I get turned off as a person with ADHD 
when things are too heavy and too really like too grown up right <laughs> like too like there's too much adulting happening on the page and I'm just like I don't I'm not that much of an adult in this speech she talked about place in Tulsa and a massacre there which I have to say I had never heard of and, and you write about it more in the book and you say mm-hmm. that you only sort of happened across this by chance. Can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit more about what happened there? There's two that I, that I write about. There was one in Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there was one called Rosewood in Florida. The one in Tulsa to me is the most interesting because it was the first time that the U.S. dropped bombs on their own citizens. People were deputized to attack American citizens and there were actually bombs dropped on these people. So the Greenwood area of Tulsa, Oklahoma was a thriving black Mecca post-Civil War uh, after slavery ended. So these were formerly enslaved people who it makes sense that they would have a thriving community, right? Because they had just come off of plantations where they had all of the skill set. They had been the blacksmiths and, you know, uh, the clothiers and things like that. And so they took all of that skill set that they had from being enslaved people and started this town, their own town in which they had their own banks and churches and, and businesses and owned their homes and everything. And there was an incident very similar to the incident that happened with Emmett Till where a young man was accused of assaulting a young white woman. And so as he sat in jail, they knew that the Ku Klux Klan would be coming for him. So men who had fought in the war, Black men who had fought in the war, decided they would go down to the jailhouse to protect this young man. And it started an all-out war. It started an all-out war between the Black citizens of Greenwood and their white counterparts who lived in surrounding areas. And so the U.S. government took the side of the white men and women who lived in surrounding areas and started to deputize people and gave them access to planes to drop bombs on the people. And it was a massacre. They destroyed all of these businesses. And, you know, that that thriving, very large Black community lost to the tune of what would be millions and millions and millions of dollars in business, property, money in in a matter of hours. And something very similar happened in Florida in a community called Rosewood. Same thing, a a thriving Black community was destroyed uh, due to a sexual assault allegation. And so I write in the book specifically about those two because they are the most, to me, atrocious that happens, but I actually make a list in the back of the books of other incidents mm. similar to it. And the list is long. But these are not things that are widely known about. Mm-hmm. That's part of the thing. It's just like, you know, when you teach the history of a nation, mm. you have to teach all of the history, good, bad, and indifferent. Because I don't think that it does what people think that it does. I think people think that it makes a, a group of people, specifically in this country, white Americans, feel bad about themselves or, you know, that's kind of the conversation that we're having now in the country about how it makes people feel. And I just know because I write social justice, young adult literature, and I travel high schools and talk to high school students. And when when me and my co-author, Geely, on those books have these conversations with young people, the response I get from them, and I've traveled a lot of high schools, probably up to a hundred at this point, I've never gotten the response that it made them feel bad about themselves or look at their families differently. What I have gotten from them is that it it, it nurtured empathy in them 
for a group of people whose lived experience is different than that. Mm. And that for the first time, a lot of the structure of the culture in which we live in made sense to them. And you touch on this in the book, like social media has become so dominant and, you know, things get out there really, really, really quickly. I think one of the things that people really worry about is this idea of, you know, saying the wrong thing. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly they are persona non gratis. But of course, the point that you make in the book and the point that I agree with 100% is that we have to make a distinction between like what is a kind of learning and what is something that, Mm -hmm. you know, is so awful that that person is banished forevermore. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I was really interested in that. My writing partner, Geely, she says something that I think is so lovely. She says, we are all more than our worst mistake. And so that is not the sum total of us as a human. That is not a license to misbehave. But what it says is we have to give people a road to redemption when they make a mistake, because otherwise, why would they be motivated to do better? I mean, obviously, there are people who do horrific things things that are unforgivable. And we're not talking about those people, but we're talking about people who misspeak. I myself have have misspoken before, you know what I mean? Or people who are just really ignorant to something and don't understand it. Or they, they said something based on their own lived experience and the viewpoint of that, not realizing how impactful or different a privileged position they may sit in is, is emotionally harmful to someone else. And so I think that we have to rethink in what in the way in which we handle these situations, but we do. We have to extend each other grace because I may be one of the people with the, the burning pitchfork to come for you today, but who's to say I won't make a mistake tomorrow? And if I didn't extend you any grace, how can I expect to have grace extended to me? And so, yeah, we have to take these moments when people make mistakes and make them teachable, learnable moments now. If two years from now, that person is still making the same mistake, okay, by all means. Yeah, like you're on your own. And the other thing is people are sometimes extended an olive branch to do better. And then we don't even allow them to do that. We're just like, oh, well, they're just doing that because they got in trouble. Well, yeah. (laughs) Duh. But that doesn't mean that it's not genuine. I want to talk about reconstruction to present day. Mm -hmm. So the period that followed the abolition of slavery. So stuff was good for a while. And then Jim Crow came in and, you know, people sort of know what happened then. But the, the point that you make in the book is that systems have been put in place to actively prevent black people from thriving which is Mm -hmm. the whole point of the book really about, you know, the system being rigged. And you argue that this is right up to the present day, including things like, you know, lending and uh, and insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Can you explain a little bit more about what systems are in place today, in your opinion, that, that prevent black people from thriving in the United States? Yeah, so things like redlining, right, which was which was legal and a functioning system until a few decades ago, um, redlined out predominantly black communities and said that they were undesirable in terms of lending for for homes, for businesses, and for things like that. And so it made it very difficult for black people to participate in home ownership within their own communities, right? With home ownership, as well as um, starting businesses. And so it made it so that exterior people were able to come in and profitize 
off of the community as opposed to the people living in the community being able to profit. And then between the 1920s and the 1960s, the US government underwrote $200 billion in, in lending for home ownership, but 98% of that lending went to white America and 2% went to everybody else. So not even just black people, but black, indigenous, um, Latinx, Asian people, in totality got 2% wow. of that 0% interest home lending, which built the American middle class. And most people know that home ownership is the first step towards creating generational wealth. And, and Black people were left out of that. There was a time where mortgages actually said that you could not resell a home to someone who was Black or Jewish. Yeah. And so when you look at things like this, you know, we spend annually billions of dollars more educating white students than we do black students. It's funny, I was talking to someone in the UK years ago about this and described how we fund our schools. And so they were floored and they said, so you have an ed educational caste system. And I was like, oh my God, I never thought about it like that. But we do because schools are funded based on property tax here. Yes. So if you live in a neighborhood and that is still in place. So if you live in a poor neighborhood that doesn't generate a lot of property tax, it limits the amount of funds that go into your school but if you live in a wealthy neighborhood with you know multi-million dollar homes and you have all of this property tax funded then your schools are well and properly funded that is still the case isn't that something and when i say it to people in other countries right they are like their mind is blown now i wouldn't i would not for a second pretend that the situation in the uk is like perfect and you know, we have private schools and private schools obviously are better funded, generally get better results. And I'm sure there are areas where state schools are better and areas where state schools are not as good. But that's insane to me because that is outright saying if you're poor, we're not even going to bother educating you properly. It creates a caste system, right? So if your family is marginalized, you're not getting any better education than your parents got. People say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, mm. there's no offering of a boot in which to do that. You know what I mean? And you have to be an exceptional human being who beats all the odds. And it's like, well, everybody is not going to be an exceptional human being. And we shouldn't expect them to be. Because actually, people don't realize you hold your country back from being formidable. When you do this, because you are not nurturing the next generation of scientists, great thinkers, physicians, if you are keeping the entirety of the nation in an educational gas system. Mm. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that you write about in the book is a, a, an achievement gap between white and black students, which in the decade between 1998 to 2008, you write cost the American economy $525 billion. That's a huge amount of money that's from like is it the kinsey a, institute yeah yeah from the kinsey institute so yeah. that made me think about because in the uk we have a problem with affordable child care right which costs our economy an absolute shitload of money because it prevents parents usually women from working because the you know the, the costs of that child care are so high that actually it practically knocks out an entire person's salary so like it's it's just not worth it so the uk yeah. economy is losing millions of pounds a year through not providing this and it, it made me think about that because these costs are really well established so given that these yeah. are really well established facts we have to address 
the fact that governments are ignoring them, right? We have to we have to interrogate that a little bit. Yeah, I think that part of why the government is comfortable ignoring that is because you have a government that is being predominantly run by people who benefit from it being that way. The nation doesn't benefit from it being that way, but them as individuals benefit from it being that way. And I think that then this is where we enter into the conversation about the white supremacist delusion and that when people are born and bred to believe as long as their community is okay, it's, it's a non-factor as to what is happening to other communities, it's like that's when it stops even being like making sense and really gets into the emotional state of this mistaught delusion. And which is why I wrote this book because I wanted to bring it back down to, to the facts of just like these decisions that started this ripple effect were economic decisions. It had nothing to do with this illusion of a supremacy. The, the supremacy was put in place to get the average everyday citizen to be okay with these type of decisions that actually hurt them. One of the most interesting things that happened during Reconstruction, as we were heading into Jim Crow, rich white men of the planter class convinced poor whites that their proximity to them was closer than their proximity to poor Black people when in actuality it was not. But it was to their benefit to sell that lie. Mm. And they've been selling that lie now for centuries. This book is specifically about the Black American experience, right? So specifically about the situation in the United States. But that said, I think that we can take a lot from it. And as we've sort of discussed then, the solution benefits us all. So... I don't know if you can answer this in a succinct way, given that you've written a whole book about it, but how, how can we win? <laughs> well, three things. The first thing I'll say is this. The most revolutionary thing that any of us can do is self-improvement. Because just imagine if we all wake up and just say, for me personally, I don't know what else is going on in the world, but for me personally, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be better and I'm gonna be more engaged and I'm gonna do more and I'm gonna first do the work on myself so that I'm bringing the best version of myself to whatever fight that I'm fighting, whether it's for the environment, women's rights, cultural rights, whatever, civil rights, whatever it may be. Um, the first thing I'm gonna do is improve me so that the fight is getting the best version of myself. The second thing that we can do is really take a look at the economic structures that have been built due to colonization globally, because we are still living in those, those systems rooted in brutalization and the dismemberment of indigenous people across the world. And so to really examine those structures and to really take a deep look and to decide as a global community that we are gonna push back on the systems that are in place that are still not working. When you, when you look at things like an educational caste system in the US and different things like that, I think that that is the, the next thing that we can do towards winning. And I think the final thing that I would say that we need to look towards winning is Everyday average people who actually care about their communities, are concerned about their communities, have to get heavily involved in local politics. You know, we all look at and pay attention to what's happening in our politics, you know, as a nation, as a country, as a continent. But we all underestimate the power of local politics. And that is where you can really be impactful. And that is where you can make real change. Kimberly, your book, How We Can Win, is available now. 
in the UK. It's a really, really interesting and really well-written read. I absolutely fully recommend people have a look at it. Thank you so much for talking to me. Where can we find you on social media if we want to follow what you're up to? Yes, I am on Instagram at Kimberly Latrice Jones. I am on Twitter at Kim Latrice Jones. And then my website is www.kimjoneswrites.com. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we flip the patriarchy, the bird E. see what I did there, as we discuss all things women's sport. And I open this week with a big old high five to England's Georgia Hall, who took the top spot on the Saudi Ladies International Leaderboard in Jeddah last week to win her second Ladies European Tour event. European? What? Well, I think it's confusingly mostly Europeans competing. I don't make the rules. Hall won by five strokes to card 11 under par with three birdies on her first four holes. A birdie, by the way, means one under par in case you're wondering what the chuff I'm talking about. Well done, that woman. Let's check in with the cricket quickly, shall we? You might remember last week I told you that the England women's team were in trouble in the World Cup in New Zealand after recording a pretty bloody awful start following a pretty bloody awful Ashes. Well, oh ye of little faith, they've turned it around a bit by beating New Zealand by one wicket and India by four. Whatever, we'll take it. We play Pakistan on Friday and Bangladesh on Saturday. But even if we win those two remaining matches, it is not a done deal. As things stand, we're on a pretty pitiful four points after five games played. Both India and the West Indies are above us with six points in six games. Anything could happen. Still, it keeps it interesting, right? Even more sport to look forward to this week as the women's Six Nations gets underway with England looking to defend their title. You know the deal. It's six teams, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, France and Italy. Five rounds and 15 matches. And where previously we've been able to watch odds and sods from the tournament here and there. If you're watching in the UK, you'll be able to catch every single match on the BBC across a mix of terrestrial and player coverage. And you can watch on RTE and Virgin Media if you're in Ireland. This weekend on Saturday, Scotland versus England is on BBC Two, as well as the iPlayer and coverage on Radio 5 Live between 11.30 and 2pm. Ireland and Wales is available from 4.30pm via the red button or the iPlayer, as well as 5 Live, BBC Radio Wales and BBC Radio Cymru. On the Sunday, France v Italy can be found on the BBC Red Button and the iPlayer from 2.45pm. There are, of course, full listings on the BBC website. The women are also getting their very own Super Saturday this year, where all the matches in the fifth and final round are played on Saturday, April 30th. So a little added tension if the competition goes to the wire this year. And the whole thing is sponsored by... TikTok, how very modern. 
Also, there are tickets available if you want to go and see some actual live sport, because you can. Check out the Six Nations website for more information, and you can find that at womens.sixnationsrugby.com forward slash fixtures. England's first match is, as I said, against Scotland at the DAM Health Stadium, Edinburgh, and England should probably win that quite comfortably, I'd have thought. Don't at me. Something else exciting in rugby, the release of a new documentary on Amazon Prime this week, the 25th to be precise, called No Woman, No Try. See what they did there. It's about the women's game. I've watched the trailer and was delighted to see that Shauna Brown, who you might remember was part of the Harlequins Alliance Premier 15s winning team last year, she features heavily. The documentary is described as a brutally honest film, shining a light on the obstacles and abuse women face in the game as well as the way in which the sport remains plagued by gender and racial inequality as well as homophobia. It's directed by rugby player Victoria Rush and I'm looking forward to seeing it. That is all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film, which you may or may not want to thank a listener for suggesting, did we watch this week? Yeah, uh, this week we watched Jonathan Yes Minister Lynn's 1992 fish out of water courtroom comedy, My Cousin Vinny. Starring Joe Pesci in the title role of Vinny Gambini, Marisa Tomai as his fiance, Fred Gwynn as a taciturn by the book judge, and grown up karate kid Ralph Macchio as a college kid in trouble. Did you think it was Jack Nicholson? <laughs> Obviously. No, I, I was like, I can't place this, lad. Who is he? That's who he is. Uh-huh. It was a huge commercial and critical hit. One of the most watched films of 1992, in fact, bringing in nearly $65 million in box office takings from an $11 million budget. If, like us, you've seen it recently and are thinking... Maybe no other films were released in March 1992, (laughs) and that's why it did so well. I hear you, but oddly, that wasn't the case. Howard's End and Basic Instinct came out at the same time and were also hugely successful. But we didn't watch either of them. Anyway, as well as garnering praise for Pesci, Tamai and Gwyn's performances, My Cousin Vinny more than passed muster with the legal profession. Director Jonathan Lynn has a law degree from Cambridge and lawyers have praised my cousin Vinny's depiction of courtroom procedure and trial strategy, with one stating that, quote, the movie is close to reality even in its details. Part of why the film has such staying power among lawyers is because, unlike, say, a few good men, everything that happens in the movie could happen and often does happen at trial. In fact, 2003 legal textbook, A Guide to Forensic Testimony, The Art and Practice of Presenting Testimony as an Expert Technical Witness, I mean, who hasn't read that banger, (laughs) discusses the film in detail as an entertaining and extremely helpful introduction to the art of presenting expert witnesses at trial. And look, my cousin Vinny bagged an Oscar for Marissa Tamai, who took Best Supporting Actress at the 1993 Academy Awards. And there's no doubt she's the best thing in it. And also that, despite rumours circulating at the time, Jack Palance did get it right on the night. Comedy isn't usually given much love at the Oscars, so I'm all for a funny film getting recognition. But that it was this one leaves Mm. me only slightly less baffled than the fact the nutty professor grabbed an Oscar in 1996. What for? Best makeup. So have either of you seen My Cousin Vinny before? No. No. 
Me neither, right? And actually, I do remember there being quite a lot of hoo-ha about it when it came out. Do you do you remember that? I remember it being a film. Like, I remember it, you know, seeing adverts for it or whatever. I don't mm. remember any fuss about it, but I was only, like, nine, so... Yeah, I mean, I can remember it being in the cinema as a thing, but I, I haven't seen it, which would suggest to me that nobody told me to. I wondered, and I meant to look it up and I didn't, so apologies for that, but I don't know if you can answer the question, what the certificate of it was because they do say fuck in it but apart from that it seemed to me that it would be fully pg it was a 15 gen she said absolutely not having to look that up a brief plot summary for you college kids bill gambini that's macchio and his pal stan are driving through alabama in their very distinctive metallic mint green 1964 buick skylark convertible this is important they stop for supplies Bill accidentally leaves without paying for his tin of tuna fish and they realise a few miles down the road in their very distinctive metallic mint green 1964 Mm -hmm. Buick Skylark convertible. This is still very important. (laughs) Bums for them. After they leave the store, it's robbed and the cashier murdered and due to some circumstantial evidence, Bill and Stan are arrested for the crime. But surely, surely it's an easy enough mistake to clear up, right? Nope. Making you wonder how the fuck he got into college, Bill properly spaffs his police interview when, instead of explaining he accidentally pocketed a tin of tuna fish and absolutely did not shoot the cashier, he just repeats, I shot the clock. Twice. It's the first of several lols wrought from miscommunication. (laughs) Bill is charged with first degree murder and Stan as an accessory. Bill's mother doesn't bother to come visit her son who might be facing the death penalty, but she does remind him there is an attorney in the family, his cousin, Vinnie Gambini, that's Pesci. Clearly she knows Vinnie has no trial experience and her son is facing the death penalty, but she recommends him anyway. Vinnie turns up, all black leather jackets, gold jewellery and Brooklyn swagger, along with his fiancée, Mona Lisa Vito, who has attitude and smarts galore and also knows everything about cars. This is of vital importance. <laughs> Will Vinnie unlock his inner Perry Mason and come good at the trial? Well, what do you think? Pigs, train whistles, various contempts of court, mud, an incredible suit, and one Mona Lisa to the rescue later, and the kids are free. Just a little fun fact for you here. The end of the film wasn't the end of Vinnie Gambini. Pesci totally had more use for that guy, reprising the character for his 1998 studio album, Vincent LaGuardia Gambini Sings Just For You, which contains the song, Yo, Cousin Vinny, three times, once in English, once in Italian, and once in Spanish. 45 seconds of Yo, Cousin Vinny in any language is funnier than anything that happens in the whole <laughs> 190 minutes of My Cousin Vinny, the film. And that's because Joe Pesci slipping over in the mud only lasts 10 seconds. So, first of all, there is a, a brilliant section in a song called Wise Guy where Joe Pesci attempts to rap. Fighting and stealing, don't kill without feeling. So I went in casino before they start dealing. I'm going to start with Hannah. How much did this misunderstanding setup annoy you? Oh, yeah, I mean, a huge amount, a huge amount. The idea that they don't just say, hang on, clearly, what are you accusing me of? I just stole tuna. Yeah, what I will say is that they are leaning very heavily on this, oh, you come down south trope, you know, that southerners are all very, you know, stupid and, yeah. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that 
is supposed to be doing a lot of the work for you in that you're like, okay, these aren't civilised people. They won't have a normal legal system. They don't even bother to make all of the southern idiots have southern accents. Surely it'd be like the very, the most basic thing you could do. But anyway, um, in terms of the setup, yeah, no, it was stupid. It was very, very silly. And you're like, why don't you just say, why don't you just say, why don't you just say, and then you're like, is that even legal? Could you like, could that legally be considered a confession when at no point has he actually used the words, I confess to killing a man? Like, I don't know. Are they meant to be stupid? Was it meant to be a stitch up? Because they all like stick together and they hate people from the North. I wasn't clear. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think I think that both of them are supposed to be doing something yeah. at the same time. And they do have witnesses, albeit mm. not particularly credible yes, ones. Yes, three separate witnesses. Three witnesses, two of whom can't two of whom can't actually see for whatever reason, one of whom is just just lied. I think there the point is supposed to be it's lazy, isn't it? It's lazy yeah. investigations. But yes, I mean if he had been clearer at the start, yeah. yeah. This is my problem with it, is actually I didn't think it was as awful as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be dreadful, and it wasn't as awful as I thought it was going to be, by any stretch of the imagination. I will say that the minute Jonathan Lynn's name came up at the start, I already had a kind of attachment to it, because I love Jonathan Lynn. So I kept thinking it can't be that bad, because otherwise he wouldn't have made it. Do you know what I mean? Or I certainly, if I don't, not to say I love Jonathan Lynn, I love Jonathan Lynn's work in, in Yes Minister. Yes oh, Minister yeah. is a work of genius. So I felt maybe a bit more settled that it would be okay. But I think the best thing in it, which is her being able to like completely like crush the expectations of what she would know anything about, you know, going from I'm a hairdresser, is completely ruined by the fact that she's actually acting like a massive prick at that point. And that she she thinks it's a good having the hump with her boyfriend is a good enough reason to risk the lives of the men that he's defending. And I just think, why can't you just let her be right? Why does she have to be right? But then also in the middle of this fucking petulant childlike tantrum that she's having. Well, it's all a biological clock's fault, Hannah. I think they've established that earlier in the film. All right. Well, that's interesting that you both had more time for it than I did. So I wanted to talk before we talk about Marissa Tomei's performance specifically. It's a comedy, right? And I can see yeah. that the performances are good. I think Pesci and Tomai are funnier than their material. They do really well with it. But I just found it dull. I just found it really boring. I I would say it was like, for me, middle of the road. I sort of enjoyed it in a way that like maybe I would enjoy like Uncle Buck or something. Although Uncle Buck is like a thousand times better than this. Did you laugh? I laughed a few times, yeah, I did laugh a few times, but I didn't like, there was nothing that made me like proper belly laugh or anything, I was just like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, like it wasn't, I I sort of chuckled a bit. I laughed when Pesci fell over in the mud, because he's very good at slapstick. (laughs) Yeah, and I think a lot of the jokes are really obvious, you can see them coming five minutes off yeah. like when he he says does the train normally come in at this time and then the guy says to him no not usually and then it usually turns out it usually comes in even earlier and it's just it's things like that are just the, the jokes are so obvious that i don't know i wonder whether the fact that it's obvious and you got the joke before it was coming is supposed to make you feel better about yourself i don't know <laughs> i can't say i can't say it made me laugh because if it made me laugh I'd be able to quote something now that made me laugh. And I can't, I suppose there were yeah, some no. moments, there were some moments where I went, huh, like when he first walks in in that ridiculous so, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. sort of, huh. 
huh, moments, but nothing particularly funny. But, you know, I thought it was all right, not awful. I wouldn't choose to watch it again. But were I on an aeroplane and it was the only film that was on, I would watch it rather than just stare out of the window. Okay. Yeah, it was watchable. I just think it's, I mean, Joe Pesci's likeable enough. Marissa Tomei, the, the kind of diametrically opposed personality of her was a bit whiplash, I think. At the same point, you know, she's all of these things. She's smart, she's clever, you know, she's all of these things. But at the same time, she's like really trad wife whining kind of thing. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it an Oscar-worthy performance? In, I mean, we don't get to give out the Academy Awards, but I'm asking yours anyway. What were the alternatives that year? Well, I looked this up because I was interested in that. Because I was a bit like, really? When I looked at it I, and I saw that she won an Oscar, I was like, Really? And what I did note is that she's the only American candidate that year. Vanessa Redgrave was up for one, wasn't she? Miranda Richardson was up for one. And another woman whose name I can't remember, but is British, Joan someone, and then an Australian lady. She was pretty new at the time as well, Marissa Tomei. She hadn't done much in the line of films. She's also 22 years younger than Joe Pesci definitely done very well for himself i think he did not look like and i think maybe something happened later on that i possibly didn't really grasp the significance of i think they were setting up some kind of mistaken identity situation or or like lies about his identity or something but i found it hard to believe that he'd only been out of college for six years he certainly looked older than that oh i think he'd gone back to college yeah because maybe he'd had to save up obviously to pay for college yeah. And it's okay. taken him like six attempts to pass the bar. So I think he'd been yeah. in college for a long time as well. I will right. say, in defence of this film, the message that working class people who don't sound like they should be in certain jobs or don't look like they should be in certain jobs can do those jobs is actually a really laudable message. Yeah, and excel at them as mm. well. Don't judge a book by its cover. Absolutely. But, question, if you were on trial for your life... <laughs> <laughs> would you want Joe, and obviously he succeeds in this one so you know maybe he would be a good pick but would you want someone who's never done a trial before and is only six weeks out of college to be defending you no, no. and i wondered <laughs> would he even be like was he free like did they not have to pay him was that the reason why they went with him i think oh so. no plot plot was the reason they <laughs> yeah, went with him yeah. well yeah but you know just interrogating that plot a little bit mm. i don't i don't know if it's gonna withstand interrogation <laughs> no, no it, it didn't is what i'm saying it, it didn't very much i actually know who i would call if i was accused of murder i actually have a, a solicitor i know yeah i don't know whether we should get into the ins and outs of why you've got that planned mm. on the podcast i interviewed him once and he was really nice and he was really good at his job and I just thought, I'm going to write your name down in a book because if I ever need it, I think you would just be perfect. Yeah. He also does a lot of stuff for free because he's, he's nice. Okay. Yeah. I've got who I would call if I needed to hide a body. Is that as bad? I think it's probably along the same lines, isn't it? <laughs> I'm interested. Who? I can't tell you because then, then she'd be an accessory. I mean, it would always be a secret. I'd look after her. Okay. These are not questions I've ever thought about, guys, just <laughs> FYI. But, you know, I've got an idea about the lawyer now. I've just been... Uh, see, I live by myself through. and you think about weird things when you live by yourself. And when you watch murder things 
and you see that people who live by themselves get fitted up for murder all the time because they never have an oh. alibi and stuff like that. Yeah, I always I always think best be safe. Yeah. And I have weird sort of flashbacks that aren't real that I think, oh, life's pretty good. Apart from that time I killed a man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's real for a moment, so I have to go through a scenario of what might have happened and who would have helped me. But I haven't killed a man, just for clarity's sake. Good to know. <laughs> So I I really don't have very much more to say about this film. In fact, not very much at all, because it is quite a nothingy film. Would you like me me to talk about other things I think about when I'm on my own? (laughs) I don't know whether that's good for the listeners, to be honest with you, Anna. (laughs) I am just going to skip to the big question. Guilty or not guilty? Rated or dated? I don't think it's dated. I just don't think it was the best film I've ever seen. I would say I think its attitude to, like, the good old boy South is a little bit dated, mm-hmm. to be honest. Although, oddly, that oh, might no. now that might now have come full circle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not great as a film. I think I would rather watch Yes Minister over and over and over again, personally. But I think that would be 95% of people, wouldn't it? Yeah, Yes Minister's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, again, I know what you mean. It's not necessarily hugely dated but it's not rated so i'm gonna say dated anyway thanks for watching sorry i didn't pick basic (laughs) instinct and we could all have a little look at sharon stone's chuff (laughs) who's next on the wheels of steel it is me and until just yesterday i'd written fever pitch on the oh has it um, changed i I saw that and i was excited oh no i was like oh god because it just is the most 90s thing in the world, Fever Pitch. And I just thought, I don't know. But I couldn't find anything else. And then Twitter reminded me that in early April, so it's a little bit of a cheat, it's the 25th anniversary of Australian cinema's finest hour and a half, The Castle. Oh, I've never heard of it. Oh, Jen, you're dreaming. Standard issue for all women.